Often we rely solely or primarily on conventional medicine to treat symptoms and disease. But these can mask the problems, so we never get to the root cause of the disease. There are better choices. Welcome to Generation Regeneration with your host, Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does play an important role in effective treatment, but even more important are the daily lifestyle, food, and spiritual choices we make. Now, here is Sandra Guy Malhotra. And welcome everyone to Generation Regeneration Holistic Radio. It's Stardate 94227.7. I'm your host, Sandra Malhotra, also the owner and publisher of Regenerate Magazine that you can check out at regeneratemagazine.com. We're so thrilled you're joining us today and want to provide information and inspiration on this show and in the magazine that will help you make daily choices that regenerate all aspects of your life. And today, our guest is a premier regenerative farmer. We have today Joel Salatin. He's a full-time farmer in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, a third-generation alternative farmer, and he returned full-time to the farm in 1982 and continued refining and adding to his parents' ideas. The farm, Polyface Farm, serves more than 5,000 families, 10 retail outlets, 50 restaurants through on-farm sales and metropolitan buying clubs with things like salad bar beef, pastured poultry, eggmobile eggs, pig or raider pork, forage-based rabbits, pastured turkey, and forestry products. Joel holds a BA degree in English and has authored such book as Everything I Want to Do is Illegal and The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer. He also writes extensively for trade magazines and is a sought-after conference speaker. A wordsmith, he describes his occupation as mob stocking, herbivorous, solar conversion, lignified, carbon sequestration, fertilization. And we're going to get into that in detail. You can learn more at polyfacefarms.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sandra. It's a delight. Now, you have been described as a hero of the local food movement celebrated for your ingenious chemical-free farming methods and admired for your outspoken articulously on the, horror, on the horrors of industrial food. That's a lot. And what I'd like to do today is to dive into what each of those things mean. So for starters, let's talk about the importance of local food, especially meat. Why is local better than things that are shipped from around the country or around the world? Well, for, for a number of reasons. One is that it's just a shorter chain of custody. The chances of something uh, going wrong with it, uh, being tainted with it, being uh, um, you know, not right, re- are, are a lot lower on you know, on local food when you're when you have a shorter chain of custody between farm and and plate. Uh, you know, when it's nameless, faceless people in faraway places uh, with a lot of warehouse stops and road miles between, uh, a lot of chances for spoilage. And, and what happens then is because of that higher risk, that long distance food is typically much more uh, you know chlorinated, fumigated, gasified. Uh, Preservified, you know, uh, unpronounceable uh, uh, material fied. Yes. Um, if we can just keep going with fides. Yes. Um, uh, you know, in, in order to protect, I'm not saying I'm not saying that it will that it will you know that you that it's um, 
that it will kill you from pathogens, but but because of the higher risk of that, the industry, the long distance food, goes through a lot more um, you know sanitation protocols from from irradiation to chlorination to, to you know those sorts of things, and so yeah. your local food because it's fresher, local, more accountable, more transparent, you know all those things, you simply have a higher chance of, of uh, getting um, you know the true the, the true blue stuff. I think the second reason, which is just as important, is that history tells us that any community that ultimately can't feed itself is vulnerable to all sorts of shocks, whether they're economic shocks, social shocks, uh, 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 political shocks, um, weather shocks. And so when a, when a local food system has a diversified production, uh, enough diversified production to satisfy the local demand, that diversification in and of itself creates a, a food shed resiliency that actually translates into um, into less fragility in the food system. You know, if you're depending on on food from you know uh, uh, Bangladesh, uh, think of all the things that have to be in place from from um, honest bureaucrats to um, you know to friendly merchant marine to uh, navigable ocean waters, to no conflict. <laughs> All this right. stuff has to be in place in order for that to show up on your supermarket shelf. So there's, there's a lot more vulnerability in, you know, in long distance. And, and then, you know, the, I, I guess, I guess the, the final thing, um, you, there's a whole list of these, but you know, there's a, a, another aspect is that when you support your local food shed, you're actually turning your dollars over in your community Instead of having them siphoned off in Bentonville, Arkansas, or, or wherever you know other places, and those dollars we know that turn over in a local economy fund you know uh, local business, local banks, local um, uh, you know programs, the tax base. All these things end up actually being stimulated by these dollars you know rotating in your local economy. That's right. Yes, supporting local food has so many implications on the overall health and security of the community, for sure. It's huge. And one thing that you mentioned in that answer was supermarkets. And I think you you made a Facebook post rather recently about supermarkets really only being around since, what, the 1940s or so? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so, they haven't been with us very long. That's right. Yeah, someone like me, I I was born in the late 1960s, and so supermarkets have been around for as long as I've been around. So naturally, I just think that's how humanity has survived for a millennia. <laughs> but sure, <laughs> that's not the case, right? No, it's not. You know, uh, um, even in in nineteen in the mid 1940s, over 50 percent of all food was grown. Essentially, in in uh, backyard gardens, um, you know the the average morsel of food, uh, all food. You you put everything together, and the average morsel of food only traveled less than a hundred miles uh, in the mid nineteen forties. That's I mean there are people alive today that remember the nineteen forties. It's not yeah. that's not far back. Uh, now the average morsel of food, of course, travels uh, almost fifteen hundred miles. 
So you know that that's a that's a big change, and and just the just the um, you know the carbon footprint of that distribution system is huge. Yes, that's right, and that also brings up if the if the food only traveled less than a hundred miles, that means that people were eating much more seasonally, also. So well, they yeah, weren't that's... eating perhaps if they lived in the Northeast tropical fruits in January. Or so. So there are, are a lot of other implications to eating local food that are also good for your body as well. Well, absolutely. You know, our our bodies, um, and, and not to mention our psyches, our 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 mental condition to understand and appreciate our dependency on this ecological umbilical is all bolstered uh, by eating seasonally. I mean, that's that's of course what the industry. They quickly, you know, disparage local food by, well, okay, then you can't, you know, then you're not going to eat uh, strawberries in Maine in, in January. Right. Um, but what you eat is, uh, is stuff that's in a root cellar, uh, a hoop house, stuff you froze, you canned, you lacto-fermented, you whatever you, you know, did. And, and, um, and then what happens is there's something that happens, I think, in the, in the human uh, mind, condition, spirit, to when the strawberries do come in Maine in uh, you know late May, for example, yeah. uh, the the anticipation and the appreciation, the the sheer gratitude yes. of uh, being able to participate in this great ecological cycle, um, in, instead of instead of actually being um, uh, disconnected from it, you know, as if we can levitate above this. Uh, Ecological umbilical, you know, mm-hmm. in some Star Trek, uh, you know, hover vessel, and not be subject to ecology. Um, you know, that's a pretty dangerous thing. It's a, it's a, it's a thing of hubris, I would suggest. And and when we um, participate and partake and 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 collude with nature uh, in in this great uh, seasonal choreography. It's a dance that ministers to our to our interdependency on a nest, and I would suggest that that is one of the big foundations of actually, you know, uh, common sense and and thinking about limits and thinking about boundaries over our cleverness, uh, because you know we're pretty clever and we can uh, innovate things that we can't spiritually, mentally, emotionally, or physically metabolize. So what we do is we invent something that that causes more harm than good, and then we spend the next two generations trying to remediate the damage that our, uh, that our, that our innovation caused. And, uh, and so I think being grounded, if you will, and I mean that in all of its ramifications, literally grounded. Uh, we, had, we had a soccer team here at the farm yesterday, uh, a, a traveling soccer team. These are you know rich kids, rich families, and the soccer coach said, I want to do something team building. She's a friend of ours. She said, can we come out and do something on the farm? I said, yeah, we've got a, got a patch of potatoes we could dig. How about bringing them out? And these, these were 11-year-old girls, a girls' traveling soccer team, and the moms, I mean, you know, every kind of, of, of uh, expensive SUV filled the parking lot here at the farm. And you know what? Those girls came out, and several of us, you know, we had spades that we were digging. I mean, they did everything but climb into the soil. I mean, they were picking up earthworms and slugs. Uh, a, a, a salamander came out of one hole. Was, I mean, and they they were ecstatic. I mean, it was it was better than an Easter egg hunt, and it was just 
I, I think there's really something in the human spirit that wants to be grounded. And, and our sophisticated, techno-glitzy, you know, Kardashian culture has, has um, uh, whatever, it, it has marginalized this to the, to the point where, you know, if you, if you actually want to have dirty hands, you know, you're supposed to be some sort of a hillbilly, you know, D student. Smart people don't do that. And uh, we find that especially children before they're about 13 um, really, really want to, you know, want to get into this thing if they can. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, kids being uh, perhaps a little bit closer to spirit, where they came from. Yeah, uh, they they haven't through through life experience haven't been so disconnected from that, and so it may just be more natural to them. And yeah, the point that you're bringing up about connection, I think that's huge. It's it's feeling connected, and it's also thinking about things more holistically. And I did an interview with a holistic veterinarian several months ago, and he gave a really nice definition of holism during the interview, and he described it as using both the left and right parts of your brain. So I think the, the technological side of us, the logical side of us, that's, that's the left side of our brain. And quite often we use that to supersede the right part of the brain, which is more about relationship and connection and thinking uh, about more than ourselves. And so it's really realizing that there are two sides of our brain and we really need to use both of them. And just because we can do something scientifically, that doesn't mean we should philosophically. Yeah, well, that's the, yeah certainly that's the, um, you know, that's the, whatever, the iconic statement in the movie Jurassic Park. Um, yeah. You know, when the, when the scientist is euphoric over what he's accomplished and, the, of course, the raptors have, have gotten out of the cage in the zoo and they're eating people and cars and destroying civilization as we know it. And he, he is still euphoric over his accomplishment, and the journalist, right. the journalist gets in his face and says, but, sir, just because we can, should we? And, and uh, yes, that is a question that all of us um, need to ponder on, on a daily basis because we are really, really clever. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and aren't raptors running around the countryside sort of a good analogy to what's going on today? <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, it's called mayhem. <laughs> yes, mayhem, for yeah, sure. You know, you're right, yeah. the left and right side of the brain. I mean, this, this farming is as much art as, yeah. it, is, as it is uh, science. And, um, you know, I always tell people that a good farm should be aromatically and aesthetically, um, sensually romantic, you know. And if, if a kindergarten class uh, comes on a tour and they're going ishy-gishy and, ooh, this is smelly, and wow. yucky, uh, it, it's not good food any more than, in, than bad smells and bad sights emanating from a kitchen uh, draws you to dinner. You, know? right. <laughs> you don't want to come into the kitchen and smell um, bad stuff. And our, our senses are here for a reason. And so, um, you know, so art, art and science uh, need to come together. That's right. And you, you describe that very well in the book that I mentioned in the intro, The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer. You talk about that quite a bit, how your farm, because of the way you farm, and we'll get into that in the next segment, uh, smells good and looks good and it's beautiful. And bucolic, okay, perhaps not the 
iconic look of a farm. You get into why some fixed structures and so forth may not be the best way to go, but nonetheless, it's, it's pleasing. Right. So, yeah, that's that's a really great point. Okay, well, on that note, thank you so much, Joel, for all of this great discussion up to this point. And we're going to get ready for our first break right now. But before we do, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsors for today's show. Would you like to detox and feel healthier? Are you ready to reclaim your health and life? Are you not sure where to start? If your answer is yes to any of these, then join Perul Agrawal, international best-selling author of Juicing for Healthier Families, for a deep transformational process through her total mind, body, and spirit cleanse. You can reach out to her at vivalawcleanse.com backslash Perul Agrawal, and that's spelled P-A-R-U-L-A-G-R-A-W-A-L. And we also have Colorado's top-rated Front Range Community College, They offer a unique opportunity to be trained for professional employment in the exciting and emerging fields of holistic health and integrative medicine. You can earn a transferable associate's degree or up to five certificates in very specialized fields. And these are all certified with state and national approval credentials. Click on the purple Front Range Community College banner on the Gen R homepage at voiceamerica.com to learn more. And on that note, we are going to take a brief break and we will be back soon with more great stuff with lunatic farmer, Joel Salatin. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. GMOs or genetically modified organisms are plants or animals that have been genetically engineered with DNA from bacteria, viruses, or other plants and animals. These experimental combinations of genes from different species cannot occur in nature or in traditional crossbreeding. Most developed nations do not consider GMOs to be safe. Right now, over 80% of the corn and soy grown in the U.S. is genetically modified, and we should be able to choose whether we wish to consume these foods or not. Visit non-gmoproject.org forward slash learn dash more. Introducing the Abundance Cubed coaching program on Gen R Holistic Radio. Wellness entrepreneurs who integrate the best of modern and holistic approaches will fix our broken food and healthcare systems. So host Sandra Malhotra and creator of masterpieces Noam Kostuki are going to empower them to do just that. We will help five entrepreneurs grow and unlearn limiting beliefs during this program. You too can learn alongside them by turning into Gen R Holistic Radio the first Tuesday of each month. Join us for an adventure in expansion. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. To connect with Sandra, send an email to Sandra Malhotra at wcubedcommunity.com or tweet at Sandra G. Malhotra, hashtag WeAreGenR. She looks forward to your comments. Now back to Generation Regeneration. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with Joel Salatin, a full-time regenerative farmer in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley at his farm, Polyface Farm. And we are talking about his philosophy of farming, which is summed up very well in a couple of books that he's written, one being The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer, and the other 
everything I want to do is illegal. So he gave us a great intro to his philosophy in the other first segment. And now we're going to get into some other things uh, about the way he farms as a regenerative farmer, as opposed to, say, someone who does more factory farming. So, Joel, question for you. You talk about a lot of great things in your book, The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer. One of them being how important grass is and how important having animals on that grass is for the overall ecosystem. So can you explain that? Because a lot of people think we need to just plant trees to sequester <laughs> carbon. Yes, well, the, uh, the Arbor Day Foundation has done a great sales job, that's for sure. But yeah. if you look around the planet, actually, the deepest soils on the planet actually are not under forests. They're under prairies, under grasslands, the pampas of of Argentina, the um, uh, you know the uh, the grasslands of Mongolia, and of course you know uh, North America, and these grasslands uh, are actually more efficient at sequestering solar energy into carbon than anything else. The way it works is, of course, the plant breathes in carbon dioxide, it splits off the carbon, leaves that with the cellulitic fiber of the plant, and exhales oxygen. You and I inhale oxygen we exhale carbon uh, dioxide. So we, we pick up the carbon and we exhale it, and, and this, is, you know, this is the way the whole thing works. Um, so if we, if we really want to sequester carbon, if we really want to build soil, uh, it's done under grasslands. But there's a problem with these grasslands. They have a, they have a life cycle. You know, they, don't just, they don't just grow and grow and grow and grow. They, they grow pretty rapidly in a season, and then they, they reach senescence, and then they turn brown and you know, fall over and die. And so the reason for herbivores, the reason that the prairie and the herbivore, the grass and the, and the herbivore go together is because just like uh, an arborist would prune a, a tree or an orchardist would prune an apple tree to stimulate fresh new growth or a, or a viticulturalist, a, a vineyard, grapevine, to produce new lush growth. So the herbivore is the pruner of the grass plants as they move towards senescence in order to restart. I call the herbivore a biomass accumulation restart button, okay, <laughs> to, to, take, to take the grass back to start its vegetative cycle yeah. because it grows in, a, in an S-curve. It, it starts kind of slow, and then it grows real fast, and then it slacks off towards senescence. I call those three stages diaper grass, teenage grass, and nursing home grass. <laughs> and, so, and so if what we want to do is not have grass very much in diaper stage because it's not growing very fast. We don't want it in nursing home stage because it's turning brown and, and dying. What we want is that very rapid uh, juvenile, you know, teenage rapid metabolism. And that only happens during a critical life a period of, of life of the, of the grass. And so um, on our farm, we, we use the herbivore in its, in its uh, historic strategic role as pruner of this biomass to maintain this rapid vegetative uh, thing. Now, nature does it with massive herds of herbivores moving across the landscape in a migratory choreography being mm -hmm. run by weather patterns and two-legged and four-legged uh, predators. 
that's the way nature handles this, and along with fire, because there aren't any fire departments. But what happens when you have parking lots and expressways and private ownership and, and you know, all this land gets it's broken up and you don't have the five, six million, seven million head herds of, of bison and a million right. wolves? And, you know, what, what happens when you don't have that? So we use modern electric fencing and water pipe in order to strategically place water and place a boundary around, in our case, the cows, so that we mimic this migratory choreography with high-tech water points, water, uh, portable water and portable fencing, so we essentially drive, if you will. So imagine this, you know, this herd of 300 cows, and you're literally uh, sitting in a driver's seat using water pipe and electric fence and driving this mob over the, over the landscape. And the beauty of this is that it's completely scalable. It can be done with two cows or mm-hmm. 10,000 cows. And because the, the, um, you know, the, equity, the equity in making this work is in skill and knowledge. It's not in infrastructure. The actual infrastructure, you know, there's no concrete, there's no buildings, there's very little infrastructure. Um, and so, so we're, we're, we're moving, we're using high technology to move the animals across the landscape. And beautifully, what that does, not only you know, does it build soil and do all sorts of neat ecologies, creating a, a landscape mosaic, which maintains the pollinators and the monarch butterflies and, and, and a diversified you know, pollination, germination, mosaic, you know, plant physiology cycle. But it's also way, way more productive than mm-hmm. either continuous grazing or, of course, you know, abandonment like in a state park or wilderness area or whatever. And so in Augusta County where we live, for example, the average uh, production is, is 80 cow days per acre. In other words, an acre of grass will support uh, 80 cows for one day a year or one cow for 80 days a year. A cow day is what one cow will eat in a day. Okay. Here on our farm, we're averaging over 400 cow days per acre, and we've never used a bag of chemical fertilizer or planted a seed in almost 60 years. Wow. So these systems, they actually work, and it should give us all pause to realize that what is today the United States produced far more nutrition 500 years ago than it does today, even with chemical fertilizers, pesticides, John Deere tractors, and hybrid seed. That should give everyone pause to appreciate the, the amazing symbiotic choreography of these natural templates. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, you're really working with nature very closely, uh, watching her rhythms, if you will, and figuring out how to get everything to work together instead of the sort of reductionist viewpoint. Um, I think you, co- you, you give it a really good name, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. I have it written down here. You call it the Greco-Roman Western Linear Reductionist Systematized Fragmented Disconnected Parts-Oriented Individualized Culture. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm known for stringing uh, adjectives together. Uh, it's 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 humorous, but it also helps to clarify the yeah. you know the, the the whole problem. And um, yeah, we do in our in our Western culture, we take a very uh, linear reductionist view to things, and it's great if you're inventing a light bulb, uh, right. but it's not good 
if you're appreciating all the nuances of symbiosis in a relationally complex ecosystem. This is one reason why, nat- you know, why um, um, ecologically friendly systems like ours are so hard to quantify in a, in a state institution or, or a study. Um, last year we participated in a, in a true cost accounting study out of the University of, uh, of South Australia, and, um, and, and what they were trying to do was quantify the benefits of, or, or the value, the, the relative value of all the ecological, social, and economic benefits that, that this kind of farming produces. And my goodness, it was a, it was, it was a nightmare uh, because everything relates to everything, you know, and, and you can't just right. segment it and segregate it out and, and, and slice out one little uh, aspect and say, okay, you know, here are the inputs, here are the outputs. I mean, that, the factory is, is easy to measure. The raw material comes in the front end, and the finished goods go out the back end. You, you can yes. measure that, and it's real easy in our accounting system. But we, we don't have an accounting system that's, that's uh, nuanced enough, complex enough, to measure all these, you know, ecological things. I mean, just to, just to show you how out of whack we are, you know our 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 um, gross domestic product. If, if I if I pollute a river, that's not considered a liability against gross domestic product. That's actually an asset because the cost of remediation and cleanup uh, generates economic activity, jobs, materials, and 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 uses petroleum to motivate you know to move the uh, the, the personnel around, and, and so polluting a river is actually is looked at as a societal asset Yikes. on our balance sheet than a societal liability. That should show you how out of whack, you know, our measurement systems are. Yeah, pretty pretty out of whack and disconnected. <laughs> so what I'd like to do actually uh, is read a passage that you put in Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer because I think it sums up so many things about your approach. And this is what you wrote in your introduction. You said, every day I make thousands of beings happy. What a distinct privilege. Few people and few vocations present such an ecstatic opportunity. I love moving cows, chickens, and pigs because I know how happy it makes them. And then you say, unfortunately, our Greco-Roman, Western linear, reductionist, systematized, fragmented, disconnected, parts-oriented, individualized culture does not make these critters happy. And it considers anyone who reaches for this goal to be a lunatic, hence the title of the book. We're supposed to be interested in growing it fatter, faster, bigger, cheaper. Nothing else matters. And all of these beings are just inanimate piles of protoplasmic structure to be manipulated, however cleverly hubris can imagine us to manipulate them. There's the hubris again. Yes, that's the American way. Truly patriotic. And then you say, amazingly, the farms that dump on chemicals, dope their animals, confine their animals in factory farms without fresh air, sunshine, and salad bar are now considered normal in I'm the lunatic. As the industrial food system grows, I realize more and more how different my paradigm is on many levels. We're not simply a preference apart. We are not different nuances of the same thing. We are on different planets. In fact, we're on a collision course. We're at war. Whoa. That was really a great passage. <laughs> that was that was awesome. Well, and you. I you think know, it sums up anybody... so well, yeah, your your holistic view of things and working with nature as far as 
uh, as opposed to segmenting everything yeah. and just paying attention to the bottom line, which is what factory farming is about right now. And, and it is a war. I would totally agree with you. Um, I think one great example of that is where we're at with labeling of genetically modified foods. There are countries in the world which label. There are countries in the world which don't even grow genetically modified foods. They've banned them outright. And yet we can't even know if we're eating something which is genetically modified by law. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned there everything's about, about the bottom line, but the problem is, you know and I know, it's not a true bottom line. I mean, that's the problem right. is, is the, ex- the externalized cost. The, yes. When somebody says, well, your eggs are, are, are three fifty a dozen and I can get them in the store for two eighty nine, um, the problem is that those two eighty nine eggs don't have all the costs in them. They right. depend on on for everything from GMO concessionizing and contamination to which which of course obliterates uh, you know property rights uh, uh, you know and, and, and turns neighbor against neighbor and turns uh, you know communities inside out. I mean it, it, it's a violent approach to food. Um, yes. I mean that that's an externalized cost. The 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 factory chickens that are on drugs to keep them healthy because they're in a such an unsanitary environment. Uh, you know, that's a cost. And then you get MRSA and C. diff in the hospital. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole, I mean, um, you're younger than I am, but, you know, I remember, you know, growing up when I was in elementary school in the, you know, in the early 60s, and I don't ever remember even hearing the phrase, you know, food allergy, gluten intolerance, uh, uh, all this stuff. It, it, when you had a potluck at church or you had a, a, a party at school, uh, nobody was worried about peanuts or any of this stuff. It, it, it didn't happen until about about thirty years ago. It really yes. took off with GMOs and yes. the and the introduction of of really aggressive um, manipulation of the food system and. You know, you have to be an absolute uh, idiot to think that this brand new lexicon of of, of, descript- of, of food problems, uh, this new lexicon, has nothing to do with the kind of food and the kind of farming we're producing. You would you would you'd have to be an idiot not to recognize that there's an affiliation. And we can agree or disagree on on the relative. Uh, you know all, all the little ins and outs of that, and, and that's fine. But to uh, to, to say that uh, you know uh, there's no connection, it's it's foo foo dust, um, is just silly. Yeah, it is. It is very silly. Yeah, I I was went to elementary school in the late '60s, early '70s, and I remember peanut butter was part of life. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The schoolroom yeah. was coated in peanut butter, and yeah. no one needed an EpiPen as a result of it. So, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think I, I grew up, uh, and my mother was also uh, very adamant about preparing things from scratch and using all the, the butter and the eggs and never bought into the low-fat, no-fat, none of that stuff. I, I feel like I just dodged a bullet there with regards to health because I grew up eating real food but so many children today they do not grow up eating even food and their minds and their bodies and their brains um 
they're not as healthy as they could be on all those levels. And it's, it's really tragic to see. And I think, yeah, we have the rapper, Raptors running around the countryside right now. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, yeah. That's so sure. what I'd like to do is get ready for our, our next break. And then when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about what these factory farms do to the countryside. You brought up a couple of things that they do right there to the animals uh, and in terms of the externalized costs, but it's even worse than that. So let's touch upon those things. Um, So let's get ready for our next break, but thank you, Joel, for joining us up to this point. Really appreciate it. And let me give a shout out to our sponsors for today's show. First, we have Colorado's top-rated Front Range Community College, which offers a unique opportunity to be trained for professional employment in the exciting and emerging fields of holistic health and integrative medicine. You can earn a transferable associate's degree, and they also offer five certificates in things like integrative health and wellness coaching, aromatherapy, massage therapy, reflexology, and yoga teacher training. If you want to learn more about this excellent program, click on the purple Front Range Community College banner on the Gen R homepage at voiceamerica.com to learn more. And also, if you would like to detox and feel healthier, reclaim your health, and want some guidance as to how to do this, then join Perul Agrawal, international best-selling author of Juicing for Healthier Families for a Deep Transformational Process. You can experience a health and beauty detox with Perul at vivalacleanse.com backslash Perul Agrawal. And her name is spelled P-A-R-U-L-A-G-R-A-W-A-L. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. And we will be back in just a moment with our special guest, Joel Salatin. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. GMOs or genetically modified organisms are plants or animals that have been genetically engineered with DNA from bacteria, viruses, or other plants and animals. These experimental combinations of genes from different species cannot occur in nature or in traditional crossbreeding. Most developed nations do not consider GMOs to be safe. Right now, over 80% of the corn and soy grown in the U.S. is genetically modified, and we should be able to choose whether we wish to consume these foods or not. Visit non-gmoproject.org forward slash learn dash more. Introducing the Abundance Cubed coaching program on Gen R Holistic Radio. Wellness entrepreneurs who integrate the best of modern and holistic approaches will fix our broken food and healthcare systems. So host Sandra Maholtra and creator of masterpieces Noam Kostuki are going to empower them to do just that. We will help five entrepreneurs grow and unlearn limiting beliefs during this program. You too can learn alongside them by turning into Gen R Holistic Radio the first Tuesday of each month. Join us for an adventure in expansion. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. To connect with Sandra, send an email to Sandra Malhotra at wcubedcommunity.com or tweet at Sandra G. Malhotra, hashtag WeAreGenR. She looks forward to your comments. Now back to Generation Regeneration. 
Hello, hello, and welcome back, everyone. This is Sandra Malhotra, and I am here with Joel Salatin, a full-time regenerative farmer in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley at his farm, Polyface Farm, and he's also the author of fantastic books such as Everything I Want to Do is Illegal and The Sheer Ecstasy of Being a Lunatic Farmer. And he's been talking to us about some amazing things with regards to how he approaches farming, which is very different than the way someone, say, in the factory farming paradigm would approach it. So let's talk about factory farms now, Joel, and let's let let's try to keep our composure here. <laughs> I know, I know, I might start yelling. Um, so let's let's contrast how you do things as compared to a factory farm. How would you define a factory farm? And what are the costs that communities need to absorb as a result of these operations? Well, a factory farm is where you concentrate a lot of animals in a stationary building, excluding sunlight, um, and and basically put them in a in, in a factory situation. So there's no sunlight. Uh, obviously, air is coming in through vents uh, and fans. Uh, so you can argue whether that's fresh air or not. There's no exercise, uh, and and you know you, you essentially have a, a you know just a holding area. Uh, sometimes small small cells, sometimes all together, uh, like broil, broilers and turkey chickens, for example. Uh, turkey chickens, turkeys and broiler chickens. Are, are <laughs> turkey usually, chickens. Yeah, usually all, you know, all together in one big group, whereas something like pigs or laying chickens are in small cells, cubicle kind of things, you know, uh, anywhere from, from nine in the case of chickens to yeah. maybe uh, 30 in the case of pigs, you know, in, in one uh, cell. But um, uh, the, the thing is, when you look at nature, um, animals are not confined. Animals, animals move. I mean, just the thought animals move, well, you know, that, that, that fundamentally changes the production model if animals move. Animals get fresh air. They get fresh sunshine. They always get some, they always get some green material. Even, even your dog eats some green material. Uh, and, and so the salad bar is real critical. And all, every species uh, of domestic stock uh, eats a different amount of this uh, green material. So, so in a community, uh, you know, a, a factory farm becomes this this extremely low wage, um, uh, dehumanizing place to work, as well as representative of a mechanical view toward life. And so, then what happens is that what comes out of it is drastically changed from historical normalcy. Uh, for example, you know, the omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid ratio, which is so critical for lots of, of bodily health functions, um, inverts itself in, in, when the animal doesn't get exercise, doesn't get you know, uh, sunshine, and doesn't get any salad bar. The polyunsaturated, saturated, monounsaturated fat uh, relationships completely flip, change. Um, Mother Earth News Magazine commissioned a study uh, just a few years ago with some pastured egg producers. We were one of them, and I think there were 12 of us. And uh, I'll just pick one, folic acid, which, of course, is real important for, you know, pregnancies. Um, yep. USDA, average egg, 
48 um, um, micrograms per egg, and our eggs were 1,038. Yes. I mean, so, so when you start looking at the, at the nutrient deficiency, I mean, you know, without regards to the, to the economy, the pollution, the smells, the odors, the pathogenicity, but when you start looking at the, at the actual, you know, nutrient deficiency and, uh, and, and improper um, uh, profiles, nutrient profiles in the food, that's where that's where the big you know, that's where big things happen, and then you add the pathogenicity and all that stuff. So yeah, it's um, it's a pretty it's a pretty big list of bad things to be very generic. Yeah, yes, yes. My uh, I'll I'll run through my understanding of the list of bad things. Um, first off, the animals are confined and live in rather abusive, miserable situations. Uh, like you say, they don't get to move. They're just in cages, on, sometimes on top of each other. Um, no way for an animal to live. Uh, they're frequently given non-native food. They're given things like genetically modified grains and corn, not what their bodies have evolved to eat. Uh, and as a result of that diet and the stress, um, their bodies are unhealthy and unhealthy for us to consume because of all the nutrient information that you just gave us. And then on top of that, we have, like you said, just the dehumanizing of, of the workers. What a horrible place to work. Um, and not only that, because so many animals are concentrated in such a small area, you have these huge volumes of manure that are generated. And so these factory farms just have these humongous ponds of manure outside. What do you do with that? Uh, it stinks. They, they spray yeah. it around. Communities yeah, well, get coated in this yeah. stuff. Yeah, the, 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 truth, the truth is that if, if North Carolina did not get a hurricane every couple of years to flush out, to flush out all those uh, uh, pig manure lagoons, the state would be swimming as a cesspool today. But, but um, you know, we can, the North Carolinians can be very thankful that once every two years a hurricane comes through to, to uh, dump a bunch of water and flush everything out to sea, and uh, then they can start over again. I mean, th- this, is, this, is, this is real. And, yeah, yeah. you're right. You know, n- no time in human history have we been able to put that number of animals in one spot because, you know, uh, before modern transportation – you simply couldn't move enough feedstuffs in and enough manure and, and waste material out to be able to concentrate that many beings in one place. Yeah. And so it, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's only due to our mechanical prowess and cheap fuel that we've been able to create stationary um, confinement situations for these animals in order to, to go far enough afield, uh, no pun intended, far enough afield to bring stuff in and dig enough uh, holes to get their waste products out. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's, quite, a, it's, it's quite an abnormality on, on the planet. And, and you know, I yes. think another thing that, that happens, and I alluded to this at the top of the show, was that, that stuff coming out of there is so filthy that yeah. in the processing of it, uh, all of these antimicrobials and yes. sterilizing agents have to be used, 
And so by the time the food gets to you, there's no life left in it. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with the hygiene hypothesis that basically says our yes. immune system is like a big muscle. And, uh, and you know, that's why Grandma said you got every kid needs to eat a pound of dirt by the time they're 12, right? Right, uh, right. In, in order to exercise your immune system. And what's happening is with all this, this sterilizing going on, um, we're not exercising our immune system, so we're having immunological dysfunction up the wazoo because our microbiome is not getting this, this wide litany of, of, of microbials and bacteria uh, that they're supposed to get in a, in a true living, living system. I mean, you know, you squeeze cheese out of a tube on the table, it doesn't mold, it doesn't do anything, it just right. sits there for a year. Right. Cheese, a living cheese, if you leave it on the table in ambient for two days, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow mold, and in a week it's going to walk off the table. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, yes, that's, that's what real food does. Um, so I wanted to make a connection here as well to the, the, quote, cheap price of meat, because I think that's what the factory farming system, they consider that to be an accomplishment, that sure. we can have cheap meat anytime, anywhere. And I think what we all need to be aware of is it's not really cheap. At all, if you're paying 99 cents for that two-pound slab, okay, right. uh, yep. there's a reason it's 99 cents. And what's even worse is just what you said about the the lack of nutrition value and all of this stuff. So, so many people are feeding themselves with food from horrific factory farms, and they're poisoning their bodies as well. So yeah. it's like there's no redeeming quality that I can see here. I'm, 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 I'm mystified. No, th- there isn't. And, of course, as soon as, you st- as soon as you go to price, then people get their hackles up and say, well, you know, um, uh, we can't afford to eat this and all that stuff. Um, uh, listen, um, there, there, is, there is enough money in the system I mean, when you think of all the things that don't have to be purchased in our culture, from lottery tickets to Las Vegas to NFL football to Kardashians to Hollywood to right. Taco Bell, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, uh, coffee, um, soda, soft drinks, uh, I mean, you can just go on and on. I mean, um, in, in, the, in the big scheme of things, there's a lot of money floating around on silliness that yes. if we were really serious about eating nutritionally and eating with integrity and conscience, we could we can absolutely afford it. Uh, it's just a matter that we you know we don't we don't care about it. Right, that's right. It all comes down to just priorities. Um, if your priority is to eat pasture raised eggs that may be four ninety nine or five dollars or slightly more per dozen. Uh, you probably could afford that if you don't buy the soda and the junk and the blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, and, it, and, it, and frankly, the processed food. You know, yeah. you can. I was up at the green markets in New York City, arguably the most expensive markets and the most, you know, prestigious place in the world. 
And I asked my hostess up there, I said, could you show me the most expensive potato in the market? She said, oh, I know just the guy. We shouldered our way through the crowd, got over to this vendor, and he had this beautiful setup of about 12 different varieties of potatoes, red ones, yellow ones, blue ones, round ones, long ones, you know, gnarly ones, all this stuff. So I looked around for the most expensive one, and it was a little blue heritage fingerling potato from Peru that it was, it was um, $1.99 a pound. Well, all around those green markets are supermarkets with 120 feet of fluorescent lighted supermarket shelves with potato chips for $2.99 a pound. Yeah. So get in your kitchen. Yes. That's the way to save money on food. Get in your kitchen. Get, get in your kitchen. Get jazzed up about culinary arts as you are about the latest dysfunction in the Kardashian household. <laughs> and, you can save, and you can save a lot of money, eat better, and stay out of the hospital. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You could bake your own potato chips. You could just bake some potato slices, put some yeah. seasonings on them, and boom, there you go. You got your own potato chips. Yeah, and the kids, the kids will love it. Turn it into a, turn it into an art project. You know, use the use the right brain and uh, uh, turn it into yeah. a a little uh, science lesson, whatever. I mean, it, or use your fry baby or uh, you know, uh, cook them in deep fat, you know, lard, uh, pastured pork lard. You know that. Yeah. Um, anyway. The, 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 that's that's the weakness in in the movie Food Inc. Of course, a great movie, but when that yes. family goes to Burger King and then says they can't afford produce, um, when they're eating that ten dollar uh, um, meal and that you know like two gallon soda drink from Burger King, I'm sitting there thinking, well, for less than the money of that meal, they could buy two whole pounds of our you know grass finished world class ground beef. What's the difference? Well, they got to cook it at home. Well, I bet they've got a kitchen at home, yeah. and you say, "Well, it takes too much time." No, it doesn't take too much time. Just turn off the TV, and um, and and you know, uh, uh, do it. You don't, you know, cooking is a skill, and shoot with you know crock pots and time bake and all that stuff. You can do it in the morning before you go. It's ready when you come home. Um, I just I have seen people in the most in the most extreme. Uh, difficult circumstances eat well. I mean, mm. even if it's even if it's a, a sprouting kit on your windowsill yeah. uh, to be able to eat sprouts. I mean, that's that's the food of kings and royalty, and yes. um, and and you you can do that. It's just a matter of of um, doing it. You know, get off your smartphone and start cooking something up. Yep, quit playing Pokemon Go and get into the kitchen. You don't have there to leave the go. house. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, that's about all that we have time for today, Joel. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing uh, all of your wisdom about working with nature and farming and producing wonderful food for your community. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And don't forget to follow Jen R. Holistic Media on Facebook. And you can also check out great articles in my magazine at RegenerateMagazine.com. And we will see you next week, same time, same place. Our guest will be Dr. Tracy Weiland, a global speaker, author, and frequent media contributor on future workforce trends, focusing on career, gender, leadership, technology, and education. As Tracy says, we're all dealt a hand, and it's up to us to play our aces and know where our jokers are. And at Gen R Radio, we're all about playing our aces for our overall well-being. Hope you can join us. Thanks again for stopping by today. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. In the coming week, think of the changes that you could make to regenerate your body, mind, and spirit. 